0: Hello there and welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode 47. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, I'm Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell. Our show originates from Bangor every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on WZON Radio, WKIT HD3, the WZON app, which allows you to take the station and our show anywhere in the world, and streaming audio at our website, Downtown with Rich Kimball, A couple of interesting guests on the program this week. Uh, One had an eight-year career in Major League Baseball and uh, was part of one of the most improbable world championships in history. The other is an author of several books who also is an expert on hauntings, haunted houses specifically, even even those haunted by ghost cats. (laughs) Author Jane Jordan coming up in the second half of the podcast. But we begin by talking with Art Shamsky who had an eight-year career in the major leagues, mostly with the Cincinnati Reds, the New York Mets, where he was part of that 1969 miracle Mets team that won the world championship in improbable fashion. Since his baseball career ended, Art has been active in sports media and has worn a lot of hats through the years. He's got a brand-new book out that looks at the friendships that were developed on that Mets team of 1969. Uh, and, And while it's ostensibly a book about baseball It's really a wonderful and a very poignant book on friendship and aging as well as uh, four former teammates from 50 years ago travel out to see Tom Seaver, who, as you know from recent news, has been dealing with dementia. Uh, It's a really wonderful book, and we had a great time talking about After the Miracle with Art Shamsky. Before I talk about the book, I have to ask a personal question. When I was eight years old uh, back in the 1960s. Did you have a special deal going with the people at Tops? Because I swear, every package of baseball cards I opened, I got an Art Shamsky. <laughs>
1: I don't know if, you're, you're, if that's good or bad, to tell you the truth. Uh, no, I didn't have anything special, but uh, it's. Not, I hope you saved them.
0: I did, absolutely. No, I loved them.
1: I'll make an offer to you. I'll buy them <laughs> all for uh,
0: a dollar. Oof, well, I, I may have to hold out for a little more than that. Uh, Art, I absolutely love this book. Now, obviously, here in uh, in New England, Red Sox fans, but every baseball fan was captured by that nineteen sixty sixty nine Mets team and that amazing story. I thought I knew the team pretty well, but I was surprised right away in the book uh, by the role of Whitey Herzog, who was a huge part of that team's success.
1: Yeah, Rod Whitey was the, I believe he was the head of the minor league system uh, at the time and really helped develop some of the, the young players who went on to be uh, the, the stars of the Mets. And uh, I had uh, a little bit of experience dealing with the uh, Whitey uh, and always a fair guy. And then went on to, to uh, be a great manager in, in, in major leagues. And I was surprised that at, at one time after Gil Hodges passed away, that he didn't get an opportunity to manage the Mets. And don't know the reasons why, but uh, it was it was interesting to me because he was such a good baseball man, as proven by what he accomplished as, as managers in, in later years. But Whitey was a terrific guy, and uh, and uh, interviewed him in the book. Also, got a chance to talk to him about those those young players that he saw, the Kuzmans and the Nolan Ryan's and Kenny Boswells and all those young guys. So he was instrumental in the, in, in 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 a way uh, for our, for our success that year.
0: Everybody in the book, all of your teammates speak uh, with such reverence and and respect uh, for Gil Hodges and the remarkable job that he did. And it it started right away when he told you guys flat out that losing isn't funny.
1: Well, when he joined the team in 1968, that was my first year. uh, Also, along with Tommy Agee and uh, Al Weiss, J.C. Martin, uh, a few of us came over that, that winter over to the Mets, and that was Gil's first year as a manager. And I'll never forget that first day. Um, and Gil was a very tough, stern disciplinarian guy, ex-marine. He was always uh, seemed serious. And he said, the, "Just want to let you guys know, you will not be the same old Mets that you've been." And um, you know, I, I, I it was my first year, so I, I couldn't take the blame for those early years when they no, were known as the lovable losers. But but um, we knew right away that Gil was serious, and and he really was the catalyst behind our success. Uh, not so much that year because we finished ninth a half game out of last place, but but we, you could see signs that we were going to be an improving ball club. And, and he really was the catalyst Uh, he was, he was a kind of manager that managed by feel. In other words, I, he, there was no printouts about our saber metrics or anything like that. He knew what every guy on the team could do. He got everybody involved. He uh, platooned in a lot of positions and he made everybody feel like they were an important part of the team. And, the success of that team in 1969 was really because of Gil Hodges.
0: And all of you uh, on the team also stayed uh, very close with his widow as well. Yeah, she's, she's still around, Mrs.
1: Hodges, and uh, I think she's about 93 at this point. Still lives in the same house that they lived in in Brooklyn, and uh, a beautiful lady. I actually think she's throwing out the first pitch on the fourth. I don't think she's going to throw it. I think her son, Gil Jr., is going to throw out the first pitch, uh, first home game uh, April 4th at City Field. So she's still around and she's still trying to, to, to get Gil in the hall of fame. And, and I, for one, have tried to do whatever I could to, to help in that regard. I, I, do think he should be in it based on his playing career and managing the Mets. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon who knows, but, uh, she still got her hopes for that.
0: We're talking with Art Shamsky on Downtown about his book, After the Miracle, and as you recount that 69 season, one of the key moments for you was the acquisition of a guy who made a big difference in the middle of that lineup in Don Clendenon.
1: Yeah, Don was a big, strong first baseman, right-hand hitter, which we needed. He came over in, um, um, I think, the second week in, in June, um, and he was really a, a tremendous asset. He ended up platooning at first base with the with Eddie Pool, We were still, though, going into August, uh, um, um, you know, not a great ball club. We were nine games behind the Cubs going into August, and that was the first year of division play. And um, we were in the National League East. And, but Don was a tremendous asset to the team, and and he was really a catalyst and as witnessed by what he accomplished in the World Series. He was a World Series MVP. But we needed somebody like him, and, and, and it was frustrating for all of us who were getting platooned at first base and right field, I was with Ron Svoboda At second base, third base, and then sometimes behind the plate with Jerry Brody and J.C. Martin. But but it was working, and we respected Gill so much. Uh, nobody liked it. It wasn't a great situation. But when all we all got an opportunity to play, we all produced that year. And 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 we um, we we like I said, we didn't like it, but but it was working, so we we accepted it. But Gil had this way of making everybody feel like they were part of the team, and I think that's really to his credit.
0: You got some signs uh, fairly early in the season that this was going to be a different type of year. Was it that win streak in late May and early June that made you guys believe things were different?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's true. Even though, uh, as I said, going into August, we were still um, nine games behind the Cubs, but we, could, we saw signs. Um, in the season that we knew that we were a better ball club than than, um, in 68 and also that we were our record showed. And and really there was no secret. I think basically it came down to us finding ways to win close games. I mean, we found ways to lose close games, but we were always going to be, for for the most part, we're always going to be in the games because we had Tom Seaver, we had Jerry Kuzman, we had uh, Nolan Ryan, we had Gary Gentry, Tug McGraw. I mean, we had a great pitching staff and good defense. And, and we were going to be in close games, but we needed to, f- to find ways to win those close games. And and we did. As the season went on, we'd win one game here, one game there. But we had winning streaks that gave us signs that we were going to be a really good ball club. But uh, I'm really telling you from, from, from the truth that I remember is that from the middle of August on, we were almost unbeatable. I think we finished nine or ten games ahead of the Cubs, so there was a swing of like 18 games. And, and we beat a really terrific uh, Atlanta Brave team in the playoffs and then a very talented Baltimore Oriole team in the World Series. Uh, there's a little bit of trivia for you. I, I actually made the last out of the only game we lost in the World Series, game <laughs> one. And I don't know if that means anything if I think about that at bat every, t- every day of my life. And But we lost that game and we, we still had confidence because Jerry Kuzman was pitching the second game. And he ended up pitching a great game, a no-hitter for six innings. And, and we won that game. We came back to New York 1-1. One one. If we would have lost the second game and been 0-2, who knows what would have happened. We might have lost four in a row. But Jerry pitched a great game. We're 1-1. One one. We come back to New York, and then we win the next three, and the rest is history.
0: Well, and, and you say, and your teammates all say in the book, that as great as Tom Seaver was that year, if you needed a guy— to win one game, it would have been a tough choice with all of you whether you go with Seaver or Jerry Kuzman.
1: Well, they both were terrific pitchers. I mean, uh, Seaver had the great year; it was a Cy Young winner, and and you couldn't take anything away from him. I've always said that Seaver was Van Gogh and Kuzman was Patton. I mean, that was they were they were complete opposite kinds of pitchers, but but both very effective. Tom, of course, was history will show he's one of the greatest pitchers ever pitched in the major leagues, but. But Jerry, on any given day, was as, as good as anybody. And when you needed a game uh, to win, he was right there, and he would battle you, and he would he would fight you, and he would he would find ways to win. And and um, he he was just a great great pitcher, and he was the perfect second pitcher behind Tom Seaver that year. He went on to have a great career also. He was a terrific left-handed pitcher.
0: Well, the book is wonderful, and the recounting of the 69 season is a great joy to look back on once again. But to me, what elevates this book and makes it something really special is the story of the journey and the reunion that you organized with some of your teammates, Kuzman, uh, Bud Harrelson, Ron Swoboda, to go out and visit Tom Seaver in California.
1: Yeah, but we knew at the time, this is two years ago, and we knew at the time. Tom wasn't doing much traveling, if any, and uh, we just, uh, I wanted to write a book. I wrote it with a terrific writer by the name of Eric Sherman, who has written some some really good books on the Mets and other things, and, and we talked about it, and I said, you know, Eric, I don't want to write a book that's just about day-to-day things that happen during the season. This is the 50th anniversary of that team. Let's do something special, and um, I didn't want to interview Tom on the phone, and, it just, and we knew he wasn't 100%, so we decided to roll the dice and put together a group of guys some teammates and go out there not even knowing if we were going to be able to see him because when I talked to him he said you know um, my memory's not great but uh, talk to my wife and let's schedule it and see what we can do and when I talked to her she said Art right, you know uh, he, Tom has good days and bad days if you get out here it could be a bad day and you might not even be able to see him but we rolled the dice we went out there and and met with him it was happened to be a good day and it was a revelation for all of us to, to sit down and reminisce and and tell the stories and talk about that 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 year and that season there, there's no doubt october sixteenth nineteen sixty nine changed all of our lives who were part of that team so many things have happened and and so much good stuff has come out of that team and, and when we sat down with Tom and reminisced it was it was so great uh to to talk about things that were important to all of us and and the book really is about that trip. It's not just about Tom Siebert. It's about all the guys on the team, but it's about the trip out there. And 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 and, and what the book really represents is a, a camaraderie, um, love for your teammates, and also about aging. You know, it's mm. been 50 years, and 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 the life is funny. The aging process takes place, and and but we still have the memories, and we can talk about things that were really important to us. And I think the thing that's really uh, really important for, for us to remember is that we made people, collectively as a team, we made people feel better about their lives. It was a time in in this country with the war in Vietnam, with the assassinations, with all sorts of problems in New York City, that we made people feel better about their lives in a sense that they could forget about all their problems and really follow us and grab onto us. And, and, and it's for us who are part of that team, it's always great to hear those stories. And I think People have passed that on from generation to generation. Kids who weren't even born know about that team because people have said uh, how great we were and how how we made people feel better about their lives at the time. And I think think that's really an important factor to understand why this team resonates with so many people over so many years is that we made people feel better about certain things in their life. And that's the best thing you could say about being an athlete when you can make people feel better about their lives.
0: Well, and you guys, you and your teammates also modeled the uh, behavior that we could all stand to see more of in America. And I think specifically of Jerry Kuzman and uh, Ron Swoboda, who could not be more far apart politically and, and give each other a hard time, but ultimately uh, show their love and respect for each other on this journey.
1: That's, that's exactly true. I, I wanted those two guys to come with us because I would. Lo- I was really ready to instigate and, it, and it, every minute we were spent together. I would say something about about uh, uh, Ronnie's political views, and then Kuzman would jump in and start arguing with him. I would then say something about Kuzman's political views, and Swoboda would jump in, and it was just magical to get those guys going again. But uh, it was part of the, the plan to have those two guys, and then Buddy Harrelson was the uh, third member who has already announced that he's in early stages of Alzheimer's, and to get him out there and see Tom, who was his roommate, um, during his playing days, and and for them to sit down and talk, it was it was just wonderful. But but you but you were right about those two guys, Swoboda and Kuzman, two, two opposite ends of the political spectrum, but great guys and and fun guys to be with. But but uh, I agitated them a little bit.
0: <laughs> uh, one of my favorite stories in the book, and and uh, can you can you share a little bit of the story that Tom Seaver told you uh, about Gil Hodges asking him whether or not he he noticed. His wife sitting in the stands during games.
1: Well, Gil was was uh, you know Mrs. Hodges and Gil had this wonderful relationship, and and they she still lives in the same house they lived in in Brooklyn, and and I think uh, Tom made some bad pitches in one game, which was very rare. But uh, Gil called him into the office the next day, and he said, uh, it just basically said, did you did you notice if your wife was at the game, and and uh, to make a long story short, I mean the whole story was about. Tom taking on this new perspective about um, respect and admiration for Gil, but also noting that uh, his wife was very important to him and his career, and it turned out to be very true.
0: Of course, uh, Tom Seaver's wife Nancy. The family has come out recently with uh, news about Tom's condition. Have you talked to either Nancy or Tom since the book came out?
1: Uh, I did. The book came out Tuesday, and I haven't talked to her in about a month. And when I did talk to her, she said he was doing okay. So I assumed that he was uh, he was he was either status quo or and what hadn't gotten uh, much worse than when when he was and, and when I say worse it wasn't that he couldn't communicate he just he you know he had Lyme disease for has had Lyme disease for over 20 years and I think this Lyme disease really kind of affected certain aspects of uh, his mental state and his physical state and and he he, he just said he told us out there he wasn't going to be traveling anymore. He wasn't going to be coming back uh, to New York for anything. No more baseball things. He just wanted to to enjoy his life with his family and take care of his wine uh, acres that he has out in California. He loved doing that, and that was what he was going to do the rest of his life. Now, I haven't really talked to him um, since we were out there, but I have had some conversation with her. And I just, you know, I have to hope. I like to use the word is with Tom as opposed to was. I hope that he is okay and and can lead a, a relatively normal life I know he's not going to be making appearances but but I just uh, hope that uh, he, he's around for a long long time and that uh, and the people uh, uh, I, I just heard today that the Mets are, are going to build a statue or put a statue up about uh, about uh, of him at the stadium and they're going to name a street right along um, city field also so these are wonderful things that happen to him and I hope he's around and can enjoy that, that whole process.
0: Absolutely. Well, Art, uh, I love the book. It's a wonderful baseball book, but also a, a very poignant story about the, the power of friendship and aging and bonds that uh, last over the course of many, many decades. Uh, we congratulate all of you on the 50th anniversary of that memorable season that, Mets fans or not, uh, everybody was caught up in. And it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Uh, thank you, Rich. It was great. Thank you so much.
0: Art Shamsky, and his new book is entitled After the miracle it is downtown the podcast when we come back we're looking for ghosts they might be right in your house and you may not know it what are some of the signs we'll talk with author Jane Jordan about all that
1: Insurance, where security meets strength.
0: We're back on Downtown the Podcast. Mm. And we're talking ghosts next so why stray cats strut? well our, our next guest jane jordan is the author of several books has experienced living in many homes that were haunted including Carrie haskell one haunted by a ghost cat which you have determined is the way to go if you're going to have a cat i it's not going to be any less friendly than my cat is so yeah i, I would be good with the ghost cat uh no food required no mm-hmm. litter box I see big advantages right. here. What, what, what's the downside of a ghost cat? Uh, well, we'll find out. Jane Jordan uh, talked with us recently about uh, any manner of ghostly appearances in any number of homes she's lived in. Here's Jane Jordan on Downtown, the podcast. Let's start with the 500-year-old cottage you lived in that was haunted by a cat.
2: Okay, well, in uh, 2006, I moved back to England for about six years, and I bought a 500-year-old thatch cottage right on the edge of Exmoor, a place that um, features often in, in most of my novels a place I fell in love with. But it wasn't long after we moved into the cottage that we realized there was a ghost. But it was the ghost of a cat, um, the kitchen and dining room were separated by a doorway and in the dining room was a large, original inglenook fireplace. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like almost like a walk-in fireplace.
1: Mm. Um,
2: the first time I saw the cat, I thought it was my own cat until it ran across the fireplace half and disappeared into the wall. But, you know, when you see something like that, you think, oh, I'm imagining things. I, di- I didn't see that. So I, I dismissed it. Um, the second time... The same thing happened. I was walking between the rooms, and I, but this time I glanced out of the window and my own cat was in the garden. The third time, I had just walked in the door with a bag of groceries and I tripped over what I thought was my cat as he ran between my legs and across the fireplace. I never felt anything, but just the impression of the cat running was enough to make me believe that I, I really nearly fell over him. Um, I never told my husband as he was always really skeptical, skeptical about ghosts until one evening he walked in the living room and he took one look at me with my cat on my lap and looked were well, quite sort of shaken and I said something like you've seen something haven't you and it's a cat and he confirmed what I already knew so there was sort of no doubt in my mind but to confirm this we also discovered the part of the wall the cat disappeared into used to be a staircase. So once upon a time, the cat would have run across the fireplace half and up a staircase, which makes total sense. And, and then, as if like the icing on the cake for this story, we did some remodeling work in the cottage, and it meant moving, removing a part of the wall. And thatch cottages are made of cob, which is um, a combination of earth, sand, straw, and horsehair. And as we began to remove a portion of the wall, we found a skeleton of a cat, um, along with some very curious objects, like um, we found a witch pin, a uh, bear claw, Irish tokens from the 1700s, etc. But um, we decided to rebury the cat at the base of the wall so he could remain in his house.
0: Wow. So that's
2: my cat story.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. Did your cat ever see the ghost cat?
2: I don't know. I don't know. He never reacted in any strange way, so I I don't know. It's it's sort of a strange thing. Um, I know animals do react sometimes to if there's a presence in the house, but he didn't seem to.
0: Now, you uh, in your book *Ravens Deep* uh, used some of those experiences. You mentioned your time on Exmoor uh, as an inspiration. The story about the pantry door—that uh, that's a real story. That actually something you experienced.
2: Absolutely. Well, that first house, that um, that really inspired me um, to write a story. And that story, *Ravens Deep*, changed my life because it it set me on the road to becoming an author. And it sort of started in um, 2004 and it was while we were on a visit to Exmoor, which is in the southwest of England, that we rented a, an old house to stay in for a week. And it was a really remote location, centuries old, supposedly um, where the poet Samuel Taylor, Taylor Coleridge wrote his famous poem, Kubla Khan. So it had all this sort of history associated with the place. But the house was really haunted, Um, something I discovered the very first night. I sat at the dressing table in the master bedroom, and as I looked in the mirror, the closet door behind me suddenly opened. I mean, it it didn't just come off the latch, but it swung open as if someone had opened it with purpose. And then down in the old kitchen, there were two large walk-in pantries, both with really heavy wooden doors and inside, when when we first opened them, inside there was all the um, cups and plates and glassware, but there were obviously mice in there and evidence that mice had been running around um, amongst it. So we took out what we needed and, and put them outside, and there were also other relatives staying with us in the house, and we all agreed that we should just keep the pantry doors firmly closed, keep the mice in the pantry, you know, But every time I walked in the kitchen, the pantry doors were open and everyone insisted that they had not opened them. Then a relative said that when she walked along the hallway to the bathroom in the middle of the night, it felt as though something was tugging on her nightclothes. And she swore to this. She said, I wasn't imagining it. I wasn't dreaming. Something was pulling on my nightclothes. So anyway, towards the end of our um, stay, the caretaker stopped by And he told us the stories of the young girl that was often seen in the master bedroom. He said that she would be seen staring at a wall. Um, But apparently years ago, there was a window there and it had been bricked up and it was obviously no longer there. But he said that she liked to play tricks and opening doors was a very common one. But he also mentioned that other guests had reported that they felt something pulling on their clothes as well. So you can imagine, when he told us those stories, I mean, the chills just went Mm. down my spine, you know. Um, So really, along with the strange goings-on in the house, and there was uh, a tiny hidden church in the middle of nearby woods, and knowing that the Exmoor Coast was famous for smuggling, it sort of fueled my imagination to write Raven's Deep. I mean, that's what inspired me to start. And once I started, I sort of couldn't stop.
0: We're talking with author Jane Jordan here on Downtown. Well, you mentioned a couple of the, the guilt giveaways, the telltale signs. Um, I'm looking at a, a list here of some ways you can sense perhaps there's something going on in your house, footsteps or voices. I, I just I get a little hair standing up on the back of my neck just thinking about that, but that's, that's a pretty good sign there's something happening.
2: That's true. Um, during those years that I was back in England, I actually worked in um, Dunster Castle, which is on Exmoor. It's a thousand-year-old castle. And I'd never experienced this myself, but other people um, said that they would hear voices and they would hear footsteps above them in the rooms when they knew the room, rooms were empty. Um, so that is definitely a, a, a sign, I think, of paranormal activity.
0: I lived in a house um, uh, many years ago, and, and I heard this once or twice. I had a, a roommate who, who heard it several times. Would hear music in the house.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> I've heard that before. I've heard people say that. Uh, yeah.
0: sorry, go ahead. No, I, 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 uh, cold spots too. That's that's another one. That's uh, is that something that you've personally experienced?
2: Yes, definitely in the castle. Um, I worked as a room steward for a while in the castle, and I also worked in the shop that was housed in the, the really old stables. Um, like I said, the uh, the castle was really old, and it obviously has many ghosts. I mean, you know, people sort of claim that the, the grey lady, who is often said to be the most famous ghost, has been seen walking down the old staircase. And the most haunted room is meant to be the King's Charles Bedroom, where ghosts masquerade as visitors and they'd simply disappear. But even though I'd worked in those rooms, I never felt anything. But so for me, the most haunted room was the billiard room. And it just, the room just felt always cold, abnormally cold and oppressive. I always felt like really oppressed in there. Sort of. It sounds very strange, but I did. I never liked being in that room alone. It just made me feel uneasy. And I had one experience in there, which was um, one day I happened to be in there alone and a visitor started to walk through the doorway. But as soon as she stepped over the threshold, she gasped. And of course, I was really concerned and I thought, oh my goodness, she's having a heart attack or something. But I thought, what's the matter? And she said, I can't breathe. Can't you see them? They're all around you. And she rushed right out of the room, leaving me really scared. As I'm looking around me, thinking, "What did she see? What am I not seeing?" You know. Um, but then another steward came along, and I told him about the experience, and because I was really a, sort of, it really sort of scared me what she'd said to me. And he said he told me that she probably saw the grey people, and over the years. Some visitors have refused to step into that room. Others say they see several grey people milling around, or can feel something oppressive. Um, I could, you know, I couldn't see anything, but I could feel something. And like I said, it was always cold. You the, know, that
0: room just had an oppression to it. Well, the feeling is, is something interesting too, and, and sometimes it's not seeing something; it's uh, that feeling, the oppression, and, and sometimes feeling that you're being watched as well.
2: Absolutely, yes. That was um, something I really drew on in my first novel, Raven's Deep, was the, it, it just the whole presence of someone watching you. And I think in that old house, especially in the master bedroom, you know, old houses have lots of portraits around the rooms. And, I, you know, I don't know why people have portraits in master bedrooms because their eyes really do follow mm. you around the room. <laughs> and it's quite unnerving, actually, if you already feel a bit scared and then you've got these eyes really like seemingly following you. That's that's um, sort of quite hard to deal
0: with. Uh, this would be hard for me to deal with, a uh, list of telltale signs that you may be in a haunted house. Impressions left on beds as if someone were sitting there.
2: I think um, that I've heard because I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's President Lincoln um, in the White House. They often, There's one room that's supposedly haunted by him and why they think it's haunted by him because they say that it's it's the room he's slept in and when they go in there there's often impressions like someone has mm. laid on the bed or someone has sat on the bed and no one's been in there. So wow. yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, you know, that's the most famous one I know of that but I have heard people say that, that there's an impression on the bed you yeah. know and it's like oh, that's,
0: that's <laughs> creepy. <laughs> Author Jane Jordan talking ghosts and spirits and all that with us on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Jane Art Shamsky, author of After the Miracle, and thanks to you for joining us. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown the Podcast.